0: Welcome to Borderlines from the Irish Times with me, Mary Minahan. And me, Fra McClements. This podcast is about changing identities north and south, with one presenter on either side of the border chatting to a guest who gets it.
1: And our guest today is Seamus O'Reilly, the author of the best-selling memoir, Did You Hear Mammy Died? And Seamus really does get it because you grew up pretty much right on the border, didn't you? And I wonder, could you describe for us first of all, just where you grew up and what that was like?
2: Uh, yes, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, first off, um, and now I will give you my exact geographical location. Uh, so uh, I grew up uh, between Derry and Donegal, but very literally in the in the between part. It's the old Letterkenny Road kind of neck of the woods. So the closest to townland would probably be Carrigans on the Donegal side, or maybe Clay. So you're going to go out towards Lifford, basically. But the closest on the dairy side would be, would still be the city. So it's really in the sticks. It's not, doesn't have like a little, a village hall or like a little GA club or anything. So, um, all of our sort of growing up, uh, kind of curricular activities, school, everything, church, that was all in the city. That was all in sort of the Bishop Street bog side and then schools elsewhere. So we grew up very much feeling like we were dairy people as opposed to county dairy people, even though geographically we we were obviously we, we were in the countryside, um, and we we were also so specifically on the border that, that my dad's fence was literally the border. So anything that went over the fence, uh, we had to you know probably should have been filling out forms uh, to grab it. Um, but I've actually done the maths for it, and uh, my dad's fence, which he erected to stop a horse from eating his flowers, uh, is zero point zero four percent of the UK's border. Uh, with the Republic of Ireland and/or the EU now, um. So th- wow, yeah. So this was something that was of negligible interest to anybody who knew us <laughs> growing up. It wasn't something we thought about. We would cross the border without realising it. You know, any time you know the closest pub to us is about a forty-fifty minute walk away. And it's a windy, windy road up, you know, you go over the border and back without being told about 12 or 13 times. And when I was a kid, I remember when phones first came out, when I was about 16 or 17, I was allowed a phone and it was like really in the Nokia sort of, you know, WAP, you know, playing snake kind of days. Whatever the sort of the usage, like notifications you get saying, welcome to Ireland. Please note that this costs blah, blah, blah. And then, it would, you know, when you went back, you know, home, quote, unquote, it would say, uh, welcome back to the UK um, just remember the UK can blah 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 so you'd wake up and like I don't know if it was wind I don't know if it was magnetic solar winds or whatever but you'd wake up with 14 different text messages from your stationary phone you know beside your bed or charging would have left the jurisdiction <laughs> so many times and come back um so we grew hope up. I to- hope you weren't being charged for that. I'm sure we almost certainly were. Um but it was all top up so you <laughs> knew every single penny you had. You had fourteen P so you know you could call your friend that you just seen all day in school and talk nonsense with. Um but that was so that's all it was. It was sort of one of those negligible funny things. People would come out to my house and be like, Oh, there's Donegal all. But like as everybody who grew up in that time knows, the the, the idea of it being a different country was kind of really not something people thought about. Loads of people worked on one side, lived in the other one, went to school in one, whatever. Um, Half the people on my bus home from school would go straight on to Donegal. Um, So it was a separation that was almost like a factoid. It was like a, huh, that's funny. That was it. And then it was not something I ever even talked about with like when I moved to uh, London uh, 11 years ago and would be talking about myself and, you know, my old family history and all that it just wasn't something that really came up until about five years ago when everyone in britain realized that they had a 300 mile long border with (laughs) with the institution that they'd just separated themselves from and so i wrote a big piece about that on twitter very angry one which is i cringe slightly to read back now because it was a more sincere and earnest time for Twitter. So it was a numbered thread that was very full of capital letters and bluster. But I was very upset and angry about how well, people hadn't talked about the border as a thing. And it now seems strange because it became such a part of the process and such a part of the conversation. But up to and after the the referendum, it was never mentioned. Uh, nobody visited Northern Ireland. Nobody talked about it. It was brought up once on question time, one time for like 40 seconds. And... To me, it, it it was infuriating and I was already writing for the Irish Times and The Guardian here and there about the, those issues, uh, sort of very tangentially, about like mostly writing other stuff. But I started writing more stuff about it, I think, because they just didn't know anyone else from Northern Ireland, <laughs> um, which I'm, I'm kind of overreacting, but maybe not by much. Um, and certainly the people they had writing about Northern Ireland were either writing extremely dry Stuff because possibly they were terrified of offending anyone or because they just didn 't know very much um and so I started then writing a bit more about that, and the number one response I would get was from people who literally had not realized that there was a border um I mean these are all English people, the Irish people all knew, <laughs> but it was it, it was very very strange it, it it it's weird that only in those last five and six years have I started thinking more about what it means and what effects it's had both in my life beforehand and also ever since. And also how much, you know, our closest neighbours don't know anything about us. So, yeah.
0: James, just to look back at your younger days, I have very happy memories of seeing the O'Reilly bus coming to mass at the (laughs) Long Tower with you all on board. And you're absolutely right that everyone in Derry does uh, kind of, Uh, date themselves with reference to the member of the O'Reilly family that they were in school with I was Dara I was one of the bigs my brother was Shane and my youngest brother I think was Dervla. so uh, (laughs) the O'Reilly bus though would have done a checkpoint run every morning um can you describe what happened during those for the uninitiated and how normal it seemed then and how does it seem in retrospect uh
2: yeah that's a really a really stirring kind of memory for me um so we, I am one of eleven, uh, as Mary is alluding to, and uh, I'm ninth in the line. So we were all kind of quite close in age. There was eleven of us in fifteen years, and it necessitated us getting to school in a in a minibus, which is exactly as mortifying as it sounds. Uh, it was nicknamed the O'Reilly Mobile. Um, you know, we looked ridiculous, um, but the whole thing was made even more mortifying by the fact that for all of my primary school years and the beginning of my secondary school years. And the 10 years before that, before I can really remember anything. Um, the only way you could get into Derry, uh, where we all went to school, you'd have to go through a checkpoint in Nixon's Corner. And, uh, it wasn't a particularly taxing thing, sort of physically. It was, you know, it could sometimes take just, you know, a minute, but it was, it did involve, you know, lads with machine guns and dogs sometimes getting out the little mirror on a stick and looking under the car or in our case, the minibus and checking to see that my dad's had decided to put explosive material beneath his children's feet <laughs> for the day, you know. Yeah. Um so that was obviously a striking thing, but as I I go into in, in the book I wrote about my childhood, it was just completely normal. Um it was just one of those things that just happened. They might as well have been, you know, wiping our windshields, you know, and, and, you know, they could or like trying to sell us a copy of the evening herald or something. It wasn't it didn't seem like this crazy thing. And also because we'd been stewed in the army and in soldiers and in that sort of queasy paranoia of barbed wire and sandbags, um, in a way that we've just, it just didn't, it was just a hindrance. It was just something that we had to get through. But I do remember my dad being, you know, slightly tense sometimes, um, not because he had explosives in the car, I should uh, point out. Uh, but just because it is an imposition and it's a, it was a, it was a very concrete reminder that you were in a disputed space. You were in a disputed territory. And as I was going through my memories of this and, and talking about it with more people, the thing that really struck me was just how normal I had considered it. Because looking back at it now, just imagining a five or six-year-old kid just sitting there with a, your mom with a handlebar moustache and a machine gun, you know, barking kind of at my dad for documents and stuff. Because... Not necessarily because they were trying to intimidate, you know, I, I'll give them sort of the better show of will and and just presume maybe sometimes they were having a bad day, they were busy, they were annoyed about something, but it was intimidating and it was something that we, was completely normal and which when I now try to explain to people, you know, my age and younger who were from other places or even people from Derry who are like 10 years younger, they find it very hard, hard to believe that that was part of our primary school experience. Um so yeah, it was a big flag in your in your head saying, "This place is disputed. This place uh, is is contested. You know, it's not as easily um, transgressible between as as we might think." You know, it was a little reminder that there are lines on this map, and they're you know they're a bit more solid than we kind of like to think in our day and daily life.
1: It's funny, isn't it that? normality and and myself and Mary have talked about this and we've talked about this with other guests on on, on the podcast and you brought back a memory for me there actually that I'd forgotten. It was that same thing. It was being stopped at a checkpoint on the way to school as a primary school child, I I imagine. But I remember this particular day, we weren't stopped. We were waved on and and other cars were being stopped. And I asked my mum, why didn't they stop us? And they stopped other cars. And she said, well, because they know that a woman isn't going to have a bomb in the car when they, she's just got her children in the car, you know. And I just kind of went, all right, yeah, you know. And when you look back on that, you think that's completely crazy that you would even be having that conversation as a primary school child or that they would even think that your dad would, you know, that there would be kind of anything in that situation with with you all, all in the car. But it's this idea of normality. But it was very interesting what you were saying in terms of the effect that this had on everybody because you're i think you you're the youngest guest that we've had so far on on the podcast and people i think would look at you as sort of almost part of that good friday agreement g- generation you know you would have been what 11 or 12 i think when when the good friday agreement was signed but but actually what you're saying is that th- this cast a shadow over everybody or perhaps not a shadow but had an impact on everybody and I presume still still does I'd be interested to hear your your thoughts on that.
2: Um, Yeah I mean I I sort of always preface these things with exactly that so I I was 13 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed Um, I think Lyra McKee the late great Lyra McKee wrote quite movingly about the sort of ceasefire babies I think she's she was a little bit younger than I was and I, I do think that's true I had a very different experience even than my older brothers and sisters let alone my my dad, who didn't get the inalienable right to vote until he was thirty, you know, I can't tell that story, and it doesn't behoove me to. And I, and I think anytime I talk about things like a checkpoint run or um, the little skirmishes and bomb scares and stuff that I went through, that you know, these this was in the good times. You know, this was the you know, this was in the slow fade and the wind down into the sort of uneasy sometimes but at least stable piece that has existed since um, with lots of caveats in there about you know just how rosy things are and have been for the last uh, two decades but it's a completely different thing to you know my dad was stopped and searched every time he went into a shop you know when he was in college in Belfast you know, as a young man, going into a record store, you know, he'd be padded down for, I don't know, nail bombs or whatever. Like, and he tells me those stories and I have the same reaction that sort of younger people have when I say things about checkpoint. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like every day, every day, that was every single day. And But having said that, because I've always prefaced things like this. And if you grow up in Derry and all of the older people are telling you the, the bad old days and none of that, but they've earned their cynicism and they've earned their joy at things changing, you know, in such a way. That I always, I discounted a lot of the experiences and it was only when I started writing more that I was like, oh yeah, there was a bomb that went off the top of our road when I was three. <laughs> that's that's not something I've ever talked about or thought about. I wasn't even told about it until I was an adult, because not because I was being sheltered from it, because it just wasn't something that was even noteworthy. I think when it was in uh, August of 88, uh the customs checkpoint was right, as I said, we're literally right on the border. So the customs checkpoint for the UK was just at the top of our land and right across the street was the Republic of Ireland. And like they got on fairly well. I think they like, had their lunches together and stuff. You know, they were just bored out of their minds on this country road. And then one weekend, someone um, tossed in like one of those sort of quality street bombs, you know, that kind of where you literally drive slowly up and you'd throw it in. And it blew up it's like one of those horrible little prefab sort of huts it was and it blew a wall into our field with sink still attached. So this is like, we're not even talking 20 feet away from our kitchen window. like We're looking directly out into it. So that was something when I told my wife about that, she was like, what? Well, why have you never told me this? This is completely insane. I was like, I just, I've never thought about it. I just remember being told and the windows rattled for a bit and I think we had to go and stay at my granny's and yeah, it was just like even the Dairy Journal covered it three days later because it came out on a Tuesday and it was on like page 13. It was on like, it was, there was 11 other bombs and obviously, you know, I know a little bit about having to, f- you know, fight for notice among 11 other things or, uh, <laughs> in my family. So it was just, there's sort of the throwaway quality of these things. And the fact that my dad did kind of protect us from things, obviously, because he's, you know, a dad, but he would also have to explain, like you were describing, he'd have to explain completely insane things. And every morning we listened to the, the radio, it would be BBC Radio Foil And, you know, he wouldn't let us watch like super violent cartoons, for example, but we would hear a roll call of the dead every morning, like every single morning. And I would just say such and such Catholic murdered, such and such Protestant murdered. And that sort of, sort of click track of just death, being passed over as if it was literally the football scores, Mm -hmm. you know, with so little emotion in the voice because, you know, that's not really the job of, of a a local radio bulletin, maybe to just be constantly stirring people up with sort of anger and, and, and horror. But like when you're describing, you know, horrible things in such a deadpan way, then, you know, that, that trickles into you. That's just something you take for granted by, by definition, because it's all you've known. Um, so by the time things had kind of quietened down, um, particularly when I was going into like sort of the latter part of secondary school, it was, it was kind of remarkable how much, how different my experience was from say my older brothers and sisters who are like maybe nine or 10 years Mm -hmm. older, because, you know, there was a sense that things were getting better and things were changing. Um, there was, you know, real kind of hope and optimism. I mean, when I was in school, I was in school while John Hume and Seamus Heaney both got their Nobel Prizes, I think within a few years. And that was my old school. Um, They were in the same school as me, but they were a few years ahead, I should point out.
1: It's in (laughs) columns. Yes.
2: (laughs) And so there was that feeling of optimism. There was a feeling like, this is a moment, this is a moment for the place. And, And we were aware of it. We, you know, that we didn't take for granted. You know, we saw that these things were, you know, were good. And then you kind of also saw it's all the same people in politics. It's all the same people who've been saying the same things and they just kept saying the same things. Um, so there was a sort of an uneasy optimism that I think none of my early, my my older brothers and sisters possibly ever really? had the luxury of having when they were kids. Um, and so maybe that was, that was a difference if, if if I had to give one is that we had that break around about ninety nine, two thousand and onwards where it felt like, oh, this is this actually happening? Is this is actually gonna get better. Um but what you have to disentangle then is what is a society like if it's had the opposite of that for thirty years?
0: Yeah, it's far from normal. Um you've written about coming into your teens, uh, when the worst of the troubles was finally receding but that queasy paranoia, as you called it, was still everywhere around. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? And also the sectarianism that you've referenced, that you saw everywhere growing up, and it wasn't so much religious as tribal. And that was something that outside chroniclers of the Troubles rarely got right, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: I mean, I always used to, it used to just make me really irk, especially on like otherwise good TV shows. Like, there was, I remember at ER, there was a guy who said that the uh, the bog side was in Belfast. <laughs> it was like, come on, you just you look that up. Um, and I believe there was a there was a another guy who was like a Northern Irish photojournalist who was a <laughs> sort of side character in the West Wing, and he got loads of things wrong. Um, and also, it's always portrayed like it was a, a religious war, like it was Sunnis and Shiites, where like or like the, the Catholic and Protestant capital C capital P was somehow over over holy writ. And to me, it always seemed like it was a it was a thought terminating cliche. It was designed so that you could make this seem intractable, uh, illogical and irrational. And it's just uh, two groups of crazy people who just believe that one weird religion and another weird religion and they're fighting each other. When it was very clearly not that, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was a land-based territorial dispute, which had an awful lot of cultural coding because of the, the accident of religion being part of it. But to me, it seemed sort of very dense to view it through that lens and it struck me how otherwise sensible and serious people would kind of represent it that way. That being said there was also an awful lot of sort of really dumb sectarianism uh, that I grew up with in my school for example like I think I talk about a, a character in the book whose name I did change to I think to Euclid Duddy just because I like stupid names. Um, And he was a boy I saw in reception class. So this is four years old, couldn't write cat or dog, but was carving IRA into the table. Like that's the most common thing. Like that's that's, there's probably five or six boys in the class who were the same. And that was sort of his dad. We once went over to a birthday party and he just proceeded to tell us like this very long rant about the inequities of the British and all these kinds of things. And there were people like him who would, who would proudly say they'd never met a Protestant, which to me always seemed like a very strange thing to be proud of anyway, <laughs> just apart from the morality of it. It's just like, but by happenstance, how do you know? Like, I, like, have you <laughs> have you been asking every single person that you've ever talked to? It just seemed it was absurd, but that's those <laughs> kinds of things, they are absurd. You know, as much as they're as much as they're evil and they're 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 wrong, they're they're also absurd. They 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 don't make any sense, and it's a way of it's a strange lens through which to view things. And in my family's sort of situation, where we were out in the sticks, in a bit more of a, a mixed environment, and also my mom and dad were very uh, very committed to Christian fellowship. So they, my parents would be, uh, were, were very Catholic but also were constantly involved with sort of cross-community organisations. So things like the Ulster Project, Kari uh, Miele in Ballycastle, which we used to go to every year and like members of my family became in part of the seed group in there. And, you know, it was kind of very much with a Christian focus um, and with myself and my brothers and sisters not really being particularly religious uh, compared to my parents. But we we realised even at the time how how different it was and subsequently how lucky we were. Um because we got to see, you know, the Alistair's and the Margots and the the people with different names and different uh, traditions than we did. Um, and they got to meet a few Seamus's and Kiva's and Derbler's. And as asinine as that sounds, and as much as it sounds like, I don't know, like a, a mural on the side of a community centre where there's a kid in a Celtic shirt and a kid in a Ranger shirt and a little dove flying over them, um, it was really rare. And I knew that because when I go back to school, people would be mystified that I would choose to, to do that um, and they'd have absolutely no frame of reference for it. That being said, going into secondary school, things had kind of changed a bit and there was a lot of more cross-community stuff through the church and through the schools and I think it became more, more usual. But there was a sort of, a I don't want to say earned, but, but learned paranoia, um, especially in Derry in a place which had been so stepped on, you know, for so long and absolutely, you, you would be you'd be in dereliction of your mental faculties not to feel aggrieved as a dairy person because they had been so, like we had been so neglected and had kind of been turned into a punching bag. Um, But there was also sort of a funny side to that. So, I mean, the example I use in the book is I once rang up uh, the Central Library in Derry and (laughs) I I said I wanted to get this book of... um, I think some horror stories by Harlan Ellison and I said oh do you have I'm 11 years old by the way like oh do you have this book of uh Harlan Ellison ghost stories I saw there and uh I rang them up and I said hi is this the central library and the woman on the phone said depends who's asking which is a very very funny thing to say (laughs) in any context but to an 11 year old when you're when you work for a public body, it's, and, and, and that's one of the things that I find like that, that humor of that, the absurdity of that, because I think as sad and as tragic and as terrible as so much of this history is, there's such an absurdity to it. There's also, a, there is a humor to it and there's a warmth to it almost. And we're all in this together. We've all gone a little bit mad and it's much better. Hopefully that maybe people who were there get to tell those stories rather than the sort of schlocky Hollywood, uh, types because you know if you can if you can just tread that little line and and find the humor without sort of making it glib and flippant then yeah I think it's it's really worth exploring.
1: You're listening to Borderlines. We'll continue our conversation with Seamus O'Reilly after this short break.
2: Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot
0: Welcome back to Borderlines. Today, we're talking to Seamus O'Reilly. Seamus, can you talk a little bit about memory? Obviously, it's a huge part of your book and the precious fragments of memory that you have about your mother. And you've written very movingly about those. You've spoken also about memories that are maybe not really your own memories, like the idea of the bomb that went off at the top of your road and the sink ending up in your field. You don't actually Remember that yourself, but it was kind of passed down through family lore, and and likewise the little boy who you mentioned carving IRA into his desk. You know, he has memories that are not his memories; they're inherited memories. Have you thought much on that, or reflected on that much?
2: Um, yeah, uh, especially in the book. So the book, did you hear? Mommy died. Available everywhere. Uh, it is it, it by virtue of the fact that it's basically written between the ages of six and 11 in my life. So as hubristic as it is for a 35-year-old person to bring out a memoir in the first place, bringing out one which covers about six years of your childhood is really, really taking the biscuit. But it means that I had to really dredge through an awful lot of stuff that I knew about, that I'd heard about, and stuff that I did actively remember, Mm. but with glimpses because, you know, memory being what it is. Mm. And the example I've given time and time again is that I remember my first taste of a banana sandwich, like so clearly, um, but I don't remember being told that my mum died, like the very moment. I remember a few hours later and I remember the wake and bits of the funeral and, but even the story that forms the title of the book where I was found greeting people at the wake, you know, with my hand outstretched, four foot tall saying, did you hear Mammy died? Um, because I didn't really understand that death was permanent and I was horrifying these people with my uh, glib flippancy um, I don't remember doing that. I, I remember every subsequent time that my family have sort of mocked me for doing it uh, in, the, in the 30 years since. Um, but there's loads of stuff like that. I've had to go through. It's the good thing about having 10 brothers and sisters, I guess, is that you do have 10 little external hard drives that you can kind of mine for uh, sort of Sam is that. Um But it means that they've got an awful lot of compromise on me, really. So... Uh, <laughs> You know there 's nothing that I could ask which wouldn't end up in some embarrassing story about myself about them about some other you know, unnamed party in our family and it just means that you 've got all these different strands of of memory uh, and also people violently disagreeing about very very simple things you know things which you would presume there was there was just one answer like uh, when my dad rang home from Belfast where he'd uh went to greet my mum's body he rang home at like five or six in the morning um, because he had to go at like three or four in the morning I believe and he had to ring home and tell the oldest in the family basically what had happened so to, they, to expect him to come home blah 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 um, half the family remember it as my sister Sinead picking up the phone half them remember it as Dara Dara himself isn't sure and you're like that would surely be the most memorable thing that's ever happened to anyone but even that, because memory is clouded by pain, memory is clouded by time, obviously. Uh, it's clouded by false suggestions. It's clouded by every single time that you remember something, you're actually remembering the last time you remembered it. So memory, uh, is it's a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And this is particularly well proven by the fact that I start this one chapter of the book talking about how I only have five memories of my mum and over the course of writing the book, I find three more. So, you know, if nothing else, uh, apart from obviously all the fame and fortune, um, that, uh, writing a book gives you, uh, I've got 60% more of my mum kind of, you know, which is, you know, that's a real head melt. If you start, if you start thinking about that, well, if I hadn't written this book, would I never have recovered those memories? But, or, you know, in another sense, if I didn't write this book, I'd know my family so much less, you know, we're quite a close, huggy, chatty family. We're very loud. We love to sit around and tell stories and, you know, take the makey out of each other. That's that's how we show our love. and We do it on a very regular basis. But we still, there were still so many things I'd never asked. I never asked my brother Shane, well, what was the wake like for you? um and he told me a story about how my sister dervla she cried so much in the at the funeral that her shoe fell off and that the cause and effect of that just always just, just shocked me i was like she cried so much her shoe came off so i was like oh if i'd never asked you about this i wouldn't have possibly my favorite description in the entire book um and things like that gave me a it gave me a, a license it was almost like i had a little you know i had a little stetson with like you know the little Bit of tape that says "press" on it, you know, in like a nineteen thirties TV show. Because I was able to go up to my family and ask all these quite invasive questions. But I was like, "Oh, yeah. it's for the book." So I'd ring them up at a random four p.m. on a Tuesday and be like, "Um, yeah, do you remember we went to like this to Mosney that time? And like, was I bitten by a dog?" And all of a sudden, no, 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 what you? It wasn't you. Uh, you were actually bitten by a donkey. Uh, the horse happens. You know, it was. It, and you'd get everything would just spiral out, and having all those external hard drives of memory. Is really good because it makes it a better book, but it makes you really come away with the thought that memory itself is so fragile and movable that it kind of it's kind of shocking in a way um, so I would recommend it if anyone is writing a memoir that they have ten brothers and sisters um, because it does having a few extra external hard drives is is really useful
0: I'm sure it's very bittersweet though shamus i mean. It must be, as you say, extraordinary to unearth those memories that must have been suppressed. I'm sure it was very painful for you and some of your siblings.
2: Um, I mean, it was, I mean, the memories were, they were so banal as well. I mean, they were lovely for me to have them, but they were, you know, it was literally like driving down a road. um, I think her talking to one of my teachers. And then I think it was us late at night in a caravan in Westport and... You know, so like not exactly blockbuster <laughs> moments of high drama, but it was it was very bittersweet. Uh, there were parts of it which were, because i getting used to being bereaved so young, it just becomes part of your story. And, you know, you just kind of rattle, rattle it off. And I go into that in the book as well. So I, as a way of protecting myself and also protecting the people I'm talking to, because you don't want them to offend, think that they're offending you. So I get it all out and I say, yes, yeah, so I've got 10 brothers and sisters, but actually my mum died when I was five, blah, 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 just so that they don't step in it at some point, because there's like four or five... Uh, hinge points while I'm talking about my family where they could say something about my mum having had all those kids and then I'd say well actually she died and then they feel bad Uh, so it's become this thing which is just second you know second nature it's wrote in my head and having to actually dig in there and actually feel feel so sad for this little boy (laughs) who was me that was new kind of Um, and also the flip side of that now that I'm a parent myself how much deeper my sadness and and, and sorrow was for my dad and for my mum. Like I never really thought about it from my mum's perspective. She knew she was dying. She was leaving 11 kids behind. And in all the different layers of grief and sadness and anger I've ever had, I'd almost never thought about what she felt like, like she was leaving these kids behind, that she wasn't going to see them grow up, that she was, you know, abandoning them maybe she could have thought of at some point, you know, Um, she must've had good days and bad days. And those kinds of considerations, um, were kind of more, more rare to me until I started like reading her letters and seeing all the people who knew her at that time and what they um saw her going through and you know it's it's useful to go through the harder stuff um, especially because I write generally funny stuff and I try to make those bits earned but the trouble with doing that is you, you have in order to earn it the the pay that you have to sort of wages that you have to get into the deep stuff as well and you have to actually talk about how sad you are and still are and angry you still are. And if you don't do that, then you've you've kind of shortchanged yourself and your, your readers. So it was really, really worth doing. Um, and it was pretty much the whole process was about, I'm going to earn this. I want the balance to be there. I want it to be as sad as it was and I want it to be as funny as it was. And that meant kind of having a bit of discipline about it.
0: And I'm sure one thing was that you maybe saw your parents as a couple and, and not just as, as parents, which obviously is a big part of their life, but you have the beautiful scene of, you know, your dad <laughs> dancing with your mum with a rose between his teeth and all the kids are <laughs> screaming and squealing and cringing and yeah. mortified and embarrassed, but loving it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I really, really love that one because it's it's just silly. And, and also I think it's one of those things that... Uh, whenever people do talk about that part of the book they're like oh my god that's exactly what my parents would do they just try and embarrass us and you know kind of you know kind of making kissy faces and I think my dad had a rose between his teeth because he was like I think it was he was showing off I think it must have been like Valentine's Day or a birthday or something and we were all cackling with disgust and uh, (laughs) but it was just a nice little moment as well because it showed them as a couple. God forbid that they would show that they love each other, you know, how disgusting of them to, you know, the fact that they had 11 kids should have been a bit of a, bit of a, Mm. a, bit bit of a suggestion that they were, you know, fond of each other at least. Um, And like those kinds of moments are, they're, they're they're very precious. They're very, you know, little moments of silliness. Um, I think especially because when you're a kid, you probably think that your parents are kind of stern and they're adults and they're boring and, you know, I certainly did in my case. Um, and then you just look back and you're like, they were just, it was probably my age then. Like, you know, it's kind of horrible to think, but yeah.
1: We're talking about memory and, and, and memoirs and sort of, and, and the need to write about this and how it's allowed, it's allowed you, I think, to, to excavate other memories and to explore all of that. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is how there are, other writers of around your age from, from Derry who've been writing memoirs recently. I mean, I'm thinking of Darren Anderson's Inventory, Kearney Doherty, Thin Places, you know, there are others as well across Northern Ireland. And and I'm wondering, what is it about this generation now that, that you feel the need to to write about what was experienced? I don't know if it was a personal thing for you, or but there there, there does seem to be a... I don't want to say a movement to that too much, but there there's there's something about this generation now that this is happening, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I adored uh, Inventory by Darren Anderson. I did an event with him for, uh, we're both featured on the New Frontiers, the New Island collection of border writing, which came out there in September or October. Um, and he he made a really, really interesting point about, you know, excavating memory and and putting these things into into place as, as, you know, even something like, for example, remembering the checkpoints and the barracks, which have all now been pulled down. And and most people, I think, would agree that that's probably a good thing, that, you know, the demilitarisation has happened. And it was something, in fact, that people from from myself and Darren's community anyway were very uh, sort of agitated about. Um, But he made an interesting point. Um, He said, to some extent, it would be good if some of them still stood gathering moss, you know, gathering sort of like decay so that people could never say that it wasn't there. Um, mm. And we even remember like three or four years ago, the Brexit party MEPs who would come and say that there was never a hard border in Ireland. <laughs> you know? I mean, there, there simply was. What are you talking about? But, you know, if you kind of remove the things, and, and he talked about like sort of post-Soviet places where, um you know, things that were put up as, you know, kind of, you know, these kind of tyrannical kind of separations of people and like sort of military installations and walls, some of them have been preserved and kept almost in place as, as art projects or as a, you know, we must not forget this. Whereas in the scramble to build something like a better future uh, in Northern Ireland, whether or not that has actually transpired, but in the scramble to achieve that, a lot of it has been forgotten. It's been memory holded. Um, so I think maybe if there's something that unites a lot of the the works here you're referring to it it might be that it might be the fact that people are saying this app this happened you know (laughs) this was just absolutely part of the everyday experience of people all over the country and particularly in border areas um, specifically but it it was completely memory old. it was not something the people ever talked about outside of very specific things about a specific massacre a specific uh person a specific story it's like no but it was like just going to the shops it was there it was going to visit your cousins it was there it was having the wrong surname and being pulled out of your house at 4am you know it was there and to some extent it's it gets to this other thing which i find i i did a creative writing workshop once a very long time ago. i was working for fighting words with roddy doyle not with roddy doyle roddy Doyle just runs it i think i met him once <laughs> but uh it was a sort of a tv writing thing it was like they bought a guy in and i was just taking part as a punter and i i suggested something about northern ireland and he said to me very thoughtfully he's you know went over it and said i usually hate stuff with northern ireland i just you know it gives me food poisoning and i was like like all of Northern Ireland. But he felt free to say that. Mm. And it was kind of this idea that it's all we ever talk about. Jesus, would you never give over? And it's like, well, actually we don't really. <laughs> I think the shocking thing about Northern Irish people is we don't talk about it more. Um, it's just that whenever people give us printing contracts and whenever people ask us about certain things, well, obviously we're, we're not going to st- refuse to speak. Um, to some extent, there still hasn't been a proper reckoning of what happened and there's 100,000 people still living in northern ireland who lost an immediate family member. So you're talking about PTSD on a grand scale. I think there's a lot of denial. Um, and then on top of that you've got just other issues that are still completely connected. So the you know the poverty and the disenfranchisement that you see in Derry to this day. I think Derry is ranked 47th out of 47 cities in the UK mm-hmm. in terms of its commercial outlook and its, you know, opportunities particularly for young people. So you have to talk about that stuff if you're going to talk about anything um and my book is mostly just about growing up with a big family and you know my dad knowing loads of priests and taking a trip to spain in a in a minibus and caravan that together were about as long as liberty hall you know all but it happened in northern ireland so that stuff does creep in um and i think the reason maybe that people are talking about it is because those people are writing books and you know why wouldn't he? Um, to, to Another one to recommend, by the way, is by Stephen Sexton. Um, if all the world and love were young. It's a beautiful book of poetry about the death of his mother, which is also about um Super Mario for the SNES. So uh, I try to recommend it anytime I can because it's an absolutely beautiful book and you, everyone should read it.
0: On your own work, Seamus, you uh, referenced your contribution to New Frontier and that's you dipping your toe into fiction and writing from the perspective of a character who's not part of a big family, which must, must have been a real creative <laughs> stretch for you. But it, what's next for you in that regard? Is that where you see yourself go next in your career into fiction?
2: Um, well, I've just done a 10 part series for BBC Radio 4. So that is currently airing. Um, you can listen to it uh, in the UK or in Ireland, completely for free, um, on the Sounds app or just on the BBC Player. It's called Bright Lights, Dead City. It's a ten-part drama series, sort of satire, basically, of um, a sort of big uh production company, maybe like a Netflix kind of a thing, comes into Derry to make a drama, a prestige drama about the Troubles, and it's about the gleeful microclimate of extortion that kind of envelops them as they come to town and find that everybody's got a story and everybody wants to get involved Um, so it's kind of an exploration of that it is fictional it draws on loads of sort of sort of well-worn things that people from Derry or anywhere in Northern Ireland will know and also anybody who's watched enough uh, depictions of Northern Ireland made by perhaps well-meaning but slightly dense uh, outsiders Um, so I have very very much enjoyed writing fiction it's kind of hair-pulling a lot of the time Um, but then sometimes, sometimes when you're writing memoir, you're just like, it would be so handy if I could just make this all up. But then you're writing fiction, you're like, it'd be so handy if I could just remember this. (laughs) Just, (laughs) just sit, just sit and do some remembering. It's a bit, you know, I don't know which one I prefer. I always prefer the other one I'm doing the one. Um, and there may or may not be, uh, adapting of the book for a visual medium, but I can't really say very much about that so yes i'm enjoying all of the new things uh as for book two in a memory shape um that could be that could be on the cards as well because i did it does end when i'm about 11 so (laughs) i didn't just go into cold storage i did have you know (laughs) an extra life that went on beyond that point so who knows but um watch this space that's what i'll say
0: Before we let you go, we better ask you, Seamus, how Daddy is reacting to his fame at this stage?
2: Oh, he is loving it. Uh, He's been very, he's kind of been um, upset that it's died down a bit (laughs) because the the book came out in July. And so he was the centre of uh, attention uh, for a a good while, as he should be and almost always is. Uh, So, but it was the best thing was just getting those calls from people he hadn't seen in a while and, People would be picking up the book and bringing it home and reading it and getting two pages in and realising, oh, that's Joe. I used to work with him or whatever. So he's, that was really nice. Um, and also, you know, Marion Key saying she wanted she was falling in love with him, which he was very pleased about. So um, uh, <laughs> those kinds of things are nice. Um, but he's been very, very supportive of it. Um, one of the best things about the whole process was that I got to ho- go home about two, three weeks before the book was actually published and read it some of it to him and uh, he really enjoyed it he laughed at the right bits he didn't want to kill me I was sweating obviously because it was like oh, what if he hates <laughs> this um, uh, but he did so I, I think I realised since the book is, is largely a love letter to him and self-consciously so uh, it, once I realised that he was okay with its contents I, everything else was just a, a bonus so yeah he's doing well
1: Brilliant. Glad to hear it. Um, Shims Riley, author of Did You Hear Mammy Died? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Next week, we're talking to the author Jan Carson, whose book The Raptures is
0: out now. That's on Borderlines every Monday from me, Freya McClements. And me, Mary Minahan, and our producer, Declan Conlon. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.